Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy. Last week, we took a break. We've been going for the last several months, just kind of verse by verse through uh, this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to young Timothy, uh, who was the pastor at Ephesus. Uh, He was an elder at Ephesus along with uh, the other Ephesian elders. The Apostle Paul was instrumental in planning the church of Ephesus. He was instrumental in training the elders at Ephesus. And, um, And so he's writing naturally as someone who had a... Um, a tremendous part to play in establishing this local church, and he has concerns, and this letter was written not just to the Ephesian elders as we have seen, uh, but this church, there was an expectation that came along with it that this uh, letter uh, would be read amongst the assembly, and uh, as we worked our way through chapter 2, we began to see the corporate nature of the letter, the expectations uh, for uh, the, the church of Ephesus that we can uh, import into our church today as it uh, relates to the regulation of our worship as God's gathered church. Uh, and this morning we are starting uh, chapter 4, and I'm going to be looking at the first five verses of chapter 4. And so we're going to jump right in this morning. Paul Under the inspiration of the Spirit, he wrote these words to Timothy and consequently the rest of the Ephesian church. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Verse 4, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is to be received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God in prayer. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. God, we thank you for this morning, God. Thank you for allowing us to gather here as your church. Thank you for this letter that you have preserved, that we can open and that we can be confident that your spirit will use uh, to change us and conform us more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And so I pray, God, for the person here that may not know you this morning, I pray that your Holy Spirit would make them uncomfortable to the place of repenting of sin and trusting in Jesus, their sufficient Savior. I pray for believers this morning, God, that we would be encouraged and edified in our faith, Lord, that we may walk as we ought to walk, resting in the sufficient work of Jesus and heralding the message that Jesus came to save sinners to ourselves, to our communities, to this world. And so bless our time together in this word. And we love you and we trust you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there, there are two things that uh, I think we need to see from this passage of Scripture. Those two things I'm going to give you right up front. These two things are also uh, the takeaways that are in your worship guide. And so don't feel pressure to have to jot them down. But the two things are this that we can see from this passage. The first is there's only one way to be right with God, and that's through Jesus Christ. Right? That's what we confess 
as a church, there's one way, one exclusive way in which man can be right with God, and that way is through Jesus Christ alone. Right? I've heard it said uh, that all roads lead to God, only one road leads to peace with God. Right? And, and the road that leads to peace with God is through his son, Christ Jesus. So that's the first thing that we're going to see and we're going to tease out this morning. The second thing uh, that we uh, should see in this passage is that it's God alone, not man, okay? It's God alone, not man, that has the authority to bind the conscience of people, okay? It's God alone, not man, that has the authority to bind the conscience of people. And as we're working through this section of Scripture— what we need to do is kind of circle back, go back to remember uh, chapter 1 of this letter uh, because it's, it's closely connected here. In chapter 1, we, we looked at the charge that, that the Apostle Paul gave to Timothy here when he warned him of false teachers. He said um, he called them in chapter 1 certain persons, if you remember us covering that. He, he called these false teachers certain Persons and, and we can see just a snippet of this in verses 3 and 4 in chapter 1, if you want to kind of thumb back there. Paul says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, right? He's encouraging Timothy to stay at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons, right? There it is, not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves, which is a phrase that we see in our passage this morning, devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that's by faith. What we know, what's clear to us as we've journeyed together through this book is that there are false teachers at the church of Ephesus, and we know that Timothy is to remain at Ephesus. The apostle Paul, his mentor, has encouraged him perhaps uh, more than just on one occasion to stay at Ephesus and to confront false teachers, to expose false teachers, and to protect those that the Lord had entrusted to, uh, to Timothy and to the Ephesian elders. And, and this false teaching that's being addressed here in chapter 4 that we see, I think, is a continuation of what he was talking about in chapter 1. And it seems to be, this teaching seems to be kind of a, a Judaic distortion as it relates to to dietary laws, perhaps from a, uh, a particular Jewish group there uh, in the first century. It even went earlier than the, the first century church. But then we also see some early form of Gnosticism. And Gnosticism means a secret experiential knowledge, which is what these false teachers were claiming to have. They were claiming to have some unique revelation from God of sorts uh, that, that, that only they were privy to uh, because they, they claimed that God would speak to them in their own unique experience. And, and as a result um, the, uh, of that, their doc, they taught their doctrine and they taught the people in the church of Ephesus that they must submit to their doctrine because God has told them so, and, and these sorts of Gnostic teachers, they, they believed, and if you remember way back when we were working through 
um, 1 Corinthians 15, which was another one of the Apostle Paul's letters where he's really pressing in. If you're familiar with chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, he's really pressing in on this idea that because we share union with Christ, we will be bodily resurrected from the dead just as Christ was bodily resurrected from the dead. And one of the things Paul's doing there in 1 Corinthians 15, much like what he's doing here, uh, I believe, is that he's, he's pushing back on some early Gnostic teachings that saw the material as a prison uh, that the spiritual needed to escape from. And so they taught that one had to shed oneself of what's seen and felt and touched. And the target, their target in our passage is marriage. And, And if we combine the kind of Judaic legalistic distortion here, we see the targets collectively are marriage and food. So the Judaic false teachers and the early Gnostic teachers are targeting diet and marriage. And what they're seeking to do is to bind the conscience of the believers at Ephesus. And they were successful at doing that with some some of the church in Ephesus. And when sinful man is successful at binding the conscience of another man, what ensues from there is always enslaving. It's always tyrannical. And, and, and Paul here, he has very sharp words as it relates to these false teachers and their false teachings. Uh, he, he's, he doesn't mince words about them. He's very plain spoken because for Paul and for Timothy and for the Ephesian elders, this was about magnifying Christ and the sufficient work of Christ and protecting his church. Paul says, if you're looking with me, he says in first verse 1, that those who are influenced by these false teachers will, quote, depart from the faith. They'll depart from the faith. And that word depart carries with it this idea of of godless repentance, if you will. And and we should know that, that when the Apostle Paul is using the word faith here, he's speaking of the common salvation of God's people. He's speaking of the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints by the apostles. We see that in Jude 3, verse 3. But to depart from the faith, it's, it's to move away from the gospel of God. It's to move away from the gospel of God. So what we're seeing here isn't, it's not some trivial peripheral thing, if you will. This isn't, let's just agree to disagree. And we can get that from the very tone and the very words that the Apostle Paul is using here in this section. And and the reason why this isn't just agree to disagree is because what is being peddled at the church of Ephesus, it strikes at the heart of the gospel. It strikes at the heart of the gospel. Its message drives people away from Christ. To bind a man's conscience with man-made laws and to say that this is your righteousness— Right? This man-made law is your righteousness, is contrary, is antithetical to the gospel. Right? These teachings, when you get right down to it, when you get down to the heart of the matter here, they're striking at the doctrine of the sufficiency of Christ. Right? These teachers, they're saying that Christ is not the only way to be right with God. You must follow what we say in order to supplement your faith. You must follow what we say in order to supplement your right standing with God. 
Right? These false teachers, and absolutely every false teacher in the history of the world, their mantra is Christ is not sufficient. Christ is not sufficient. And we use that phrase, sufficiency of Christ, a lot at Deer Park. And one of our elders, Scott Embleton, brought it to my attention a few weeks ago that the phrase sufficiency of Christ may be lost on our modern ears, right? It may, it may seem like we're saying that Christ did the bare minimum. Right? I had this friend in college that said, um, he would always tell me that uh, D's get degrees. And, and, and maybe, that's what we, maybe that's what we hear when we, when we hear Christ is, is sufficient, right? Christ, got, Christ did the absolute bare minimum. That's enough. There's better than we can do. But the word sufficiency, it's important, and it's a primary issue in our text this morning. So so let me define it for us. Sufficient means satisfaction. It means satisfaction. It means to meet the need, but it carries with it this idea of contentment. Okay, there's contentment there, right? Sufficient means that absolutely nothing is lacking, Right? There was a need, but the need no longer exists anymore. Right? That definition of sufficient, satisfaction, is also, if you can follow with me for a moment, that, that definition of sufficient, which is satisfaction, that word satisfaction there is also a synonym for propitiation. It's a synonym for propitiation, which is to satisfy, which meant that, uh, biblically speaking, it's to satisfy the wrath of our holy God against sin. In other words, the, the, the sufferings of Christ were sufficient. They were satisfactory to meet the demands of God's righteous justice that we just sang about. Justice has been satisfied, right? With that carries this idea of sufficiency there. Christ is the propitiation for our sin. There's no longer a need to satisfy God's justice for those whom Christ died for. But let's go to the book of Hebrews. If you, if you have your Bibles, flip over with me to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews for a moment, because this is going to help us a little bit more, uh, help us to see this more clearly. Chapter 7. Chapter 7. And I'm going to jump to verse 23 in chapter 7 here. And this book, just for a little bit of context, would have been, scholars believe, a, a sermon that was preached um, here to the Hebraic church. But start with verse 23. It says, the former priest, okay, we're talking about the Levit- Levitical priesthood. Um, one pastor says you can't understand the book of Hebrews without studying the book of Leviticus. Now, the former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, speaking of Christ here, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Verse 25, Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Verse 26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once 
He did this once. Once for what? Once for all when he offered up himself. Verse 28, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. There are two things, there's more than two things, but for our purposes, two things that the preacher in Hebrews is telling us. Okay, the, the first is that the, the Levitical priests were not sufficient to make permanent intercession for God's people. Okay, the Levitical priests, when you read in the Old Testament, they were not sufficient to make permanent intercession for God's people. They themselves were sinners impacted both by the fall of Adam and impacted by their own personal sin, right? They were always meant to point to direct toward a better priest. They were always meant to direct, to point toward a sufficient priest, a priest that eliminates the need for any other priest. And and we know this sufficient priest to be Jesus, right? In fact, as, as Christians, we know that one of the things that happened at the death of Christ is that the curtain of the temple and of the Holy of Holies, it tore from the top to the bottom, right? The significance of that it can't be overstated, right? This was God definitively doing away with the Levitical priesthood and temple, right? No longer does man go through a sinful priest to gain access to God. Man has direct access to God through the sufficient high priest, eternally sufficient high priest, Jesus Christ. And man is the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. That's the first thing we can see that the preacher of Hebrews is telling us that helps to bring in the sufficiency of Christ more into focus for us. The second thing that's going on, a Levitical priest would offer sacrifices daily both for themselves and for the people that they represented. The author of Hebrews is telling us not only is Christ the eternal sufficient high priest, but he's also the eternally sufficient sacrifice. He's both the high priest and he's the sacrifice. Animals were continually sacrificed. Christ, according to our text, the high priest and sacrifice, sacrificed himself once for sins. Then he sat down after his ascension to the right hand of the Father where he's ruling and he's reigning. Jesus Christ eliminated the need for further sacrifices. There's never going to be another sacrifice because Jesus is the eternal sufficient sacrifice for our sin. Our past sins, our present sins, those sins we've yet to commit. Jesus Christ, he's sufficient. He's sufficient. And there's no other way that man can be made right with God except through Christ, our sufficient high priest, our sufficient sacrifice. No doctrine of man will do no, nothing that man can invent can put us in right standing with the Lord. It's God's doctrine. It's God's gospel alone. And his gospel directs us to repent of sins according to the scripture. His gospel directs us to trust in Jesus according to the Scripture. This is why the Apostle Paul is going hard after these false teachers. This is why this is no trivial, insignificant matter. They're substituting the gospel of God 
for the gospel of man. And the gospel of man is enslaving because their God's wrath is never satisfied. Justice is never satisfied in, in man's gospel, in man's doctrine. There's no forgiveness. There's no rest. Right? The gospel of man exercises tyranny day and night on the consciences of man. And the church isn't immune from being taken captive in this way. And for these false teachers in Ephesus, much like false teachers of today, right, this isn't an honest mistake on their end. This isn't an honest mistake on their end. These false teachers, they aren't well-meaning. Right? They're, they're, not, they're not to be given the benefit of the doubt. Right? Their message is calculated, and it's a deliberate attack on the sufficiency of Christ. And we see that in verses 1 and 2. Look back there with me. Again, 1 Timothy 4, look at the first two verses. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in, the, in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons, verse 2 here, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are sealed or seared. Right? These false teachers that are leading people away from God and His gospel, they're liars with seared consciences, according to the Apostle Paul. There's more sharp words there. That word for liars is pseudo-logos. Pseudo-logos. If pseudo meaning false, right, or a sham, and logos meaning what? Word. Word. According to John 1, according to Hebrews 1, who's the final word of God? It's Christ, right? We talked about this at our, our Christmas Eve service a, a few weeks ago. Behind this word liars is the idea of a false Christ, a false word, a sham of a word, right? A false gospel. And these false teachers are so dedicated to this message, and they have been for so long that their consciences are seared. They're insensitive to the lies that they peddle. In fact, the idea behind that word seared has a, uh, has a brand of ownership. Right? This was both done to criminals and to slaves in the first century. It's done to cattle as well when you think of branding or searing. And what I think Paul's getting at is that these false teachers were owned by Satan. They were owned by Satan, and they're not losing any sleep about the eternal harm that they're doing to their victims. So Paul, without letting these teachers off the hook at all, identifies in verse 1 the reality that it's deceitful spirits and demons behind the messaging, right? Behind the very thing that these false teachers are, are heralding, if you will. And as these false teachers preach the message of deceitful spirits and demons, Paul tells Timothy, as we saw in verse 1, that some people will depart from the faith. They will repent from the gospel of God. He says, in later times, some will depart. And he doesn't mean some distant future, irrelevant to Timothy when he said later times. What he, he's doing is he's reasserting what he warned the Ephesian elders about back in Acts. 
You don't have to turn there. I'll I'll read it to you, but I'd encourage you to jot it down. Paul's instructions to the Ephesian elders when he uh, left. He said this in verses 29 to 30. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves, more sharp language, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Verse 30. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. Why? Why would they do this? The answer is in that latter part of verse 30. To draw away the disciples after them. They wanted their own disciples. That's what these wolves wanted. They didn't want to make disciples of Christ as Jesus commanded them to in the Great Commission before he ascended into the heavens. Right? They wanted to be followed like Jesus was followed. Right? They, they were jealous of Jesus. They were jealous of Jesus. They wanted to be Jesus, but not in a godly Christ-like way. Right? They wanted to be worshipped, is what we see going on here. Right? Paul, back in Acts, he was already discerning while he was still there present with the church of Ephesus, he was already there discerning the apostasy and the fallout, and now Timothy's in the thick of it, and Paul has him at this post to fight for his congregation, for the glory of God amongst the the rest of the elders, while he's also, and I I think, preemptively consoling Timothy by saying that they're going to lose some. They're going to lose some. Timothy, he... He lost some people that he loved dearly. He, he lost some people that he served dearly. Some people were deceived. Some people abandoned the gospel. Some devoted themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. And this was true in Timothy's day and age, and this is certainly true in our day and age, Right? Over the last several years, I've seen people, and I'm sure that you've seen people too, not just members in local churches, but pastors and seminary professors, men I've looked up to. I've watched them deconstruct their faith, which seems to be this trendy, popular thing to do in evangelicalism right now. I've watched them deconstruct their faith, and in doing so, they've abandoned the gospel that they once claimed to cherish and that they once were committed to herald, and it's heartbreaking. This is why Timothy needed to be warned and, in a sense, consoled on the front end of things, right? This was emotional. This was sad. This is devastating. Watching those that we love, watching those that we're close to, abandon the gospel for the gospel of abandon the gospel of God for the gospel of man. There's nothing more gut wrenching and heartbreaking that I can think of than that. But we need to know, and we have this evidence, because again, I just read you Acts chapter 20. Paul saw this coming. We need to know that this doesn't happen overnight. This isn't a switch that flips. Right? Paul saw it coming. Right? The writing was on the wall. This happened on a, a slow drip, if you will. Right? This happened through the accumulation of false teaching. This happened by intaking all sorts of narratives and teaching about self and about the world. Right? This came 
perhaps by harboring all sorts of hurts and resentments, and then wrestling with it all in isolation, not just with various ideologies and teachings, but with even personal sin. And over time, right, if you're paying attention, you begin to see it spill out. Right? Not, not all at once, but subtly. You see it in comments. Right? You see it in what's not said. You see it in what's not confessed. You see it in what's, what one's being entertained by. You see it maybe on social media. Right? For pastors, I've seen it in their writings, and I've heard it in their preachings. Right? For anyone... And we see in fractured relationships, fractured relationships that were once intimate until there's this definitive departing from the faith and this definitive devotion to that which is contrary to God's gospel. Somewhere along the line, connected to something that seemed inconsequential was a seed of discontentment sown as it related to the sufficiency of Jesus that led down a path where the concern was no longer about God and his word and his glory, but rather those doctrines of men, right? Strange, enslaving, legalistic doctrines, much like what we see here as it relates to dietary laws and marriage, right? These are laws that are stricter than God's laws that are made by men who think they're holier than God, So what does this tell us? What does this tell us? As bluntly as I know how to explain what's in front of us here, truly, this is what this passage tells us. Your life and thus your worship is either regulated by God or demons. Your life and thus your worship is either regulated by God or it's regulated by demons. There is absolutely no neutral ground. There's no neutral ground. In a world in which Abraham Kuyper says that Jesus, there's not a square inch in the whole world in which Jesus doesn't declare mine. There's no neutral ground here. No neutral ground in God's kingdom. God's way which is the way of Christ, the way of embracing him is sufficient for the forgiveness of your sin and sufficient as your righteousness and sufficient for you growing in holiness as you seek to submit yourself to the revealed will of God as we see in his word. That is the only way that we find peace. And it's the only life worth living. And every other way, every legalistic doctrine of man that promises freedom and autonomy like the serpent did with Eve in the garden, right, leads not to freedom. It doesn't lead to autonomy either. It it leads to shackles. It leads to misery. It leads to broken relationships. It leads to spiritual poverty. And it leads straight to God, not as Savior, but as Judge. So if you find yourself this morning on the road to departing from the Christian faith, turn back. Turn back. If you have a loved one that's on this road of departure, show them the beauty of the better way that's through Christ who is the way. John 14, 6. 
Peter Marshall, he was a former chaplain in the U.S. Senate. He said on his election speech in 1947, perhaps you've heard this quote, he says, the choice before us is plain. Christ or chaos, conviction or compromise, discipline or disintegration. Again, there really is no middle road for us here. We don't embrace Christ with moderation. We don't embrace the philosophies of the world with moderation. A servant can't have two masters, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. If your life is regulated by God, there you'll find beauty and joy and gospel freedom and consistency and everlasting life. If your life is hijacked by the pseudo-logos, the false word, the sham word, fueled by demons and deceitful spirits, when you begin to go down that road and then you follow it to its logical conclusion, there is for you fleeting pleasures that lead to this arbitrary way of life that leads to confusion and misery, a denunciation of the sufficiency of Christ, and an eternal hell. Look at the text with me again. But on the enslaving legalistic path where man's rules are made or are man's righteousness, we see a departure from the faith. We see again a devotion to deceitful spirits and demons. We see the insincerity of liars who have seared consciences. We see the forbidding of things that God created and called good. On the path of life, we see harmony between the profession of God's church and his spirit, right? We're at the very beginning, he mentions the Holy Spirit of God in the beginning of chapter 4. We see an enjoyment of God's good gifts to man, right? God did call everything that he made good, including marriage that he instituted before the fall. Right? We see thanksgiving, which is always a byproduct of contentment, by the way. And we see the centrality in that last verse of God's word and prayer as it relates to the receiving of God's good gifts. Look at those last two verses, and I'll close us down. Verse 4 and 5 there. Everything created by God is good. Nothing's to be rejected if it's to be received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. And this is, the one, this is one of the reasons that we say, a prayer as Christians before we partake in eating a meal. Now, this is the reason that a marriage ceremony is a worship service before the God who created it and not something that Christians should be flippant about. But if we zoom out, and, and we should see this by now, this isn't just about food and marriage, although those are the things that are being addressed. That's the heat of the situation in which Paul's writing about, if you will. Right. It's not a sin to be single. Paul himself never married. Right. It's not about what you choose to eat. There's no obligation to eat meat. But while these two things being addressed, in, while these are the two things being addressed in our text, what we need to see is that this is the tip of the iceberg, if you will. Right. This is about a worldview that can't be detached from Christ. Right? It's, a, it's about calling that which God called good evil, right? And such are the times that we live in when marriage is downgraded and despised, for example. Right? This passage is about men trying to carve out their own path for righteousness. Right? This is man seeking to usurp again the authority of the Lord and his unchanging gospel. And we know, thankfully, praise God for, 
That will never happen, right? Not really. And we know that because Christ, as we talked about last week, is seated, ruling, and reigning at the right hand of God. He's interceding for His church, and He will carry us home. God's plan for the nations in light of the finished work of Christ will happen, will be successful. Jesus Christ is sufficient. Forgiveness of sins and righteousness comes through Christ alone. So as Christians, we should cast off any yoke that man puts on us. We should cast off any yoke of some man-made doctrine that tells us this plus this equals being right with Jesus Christ. And we call good, unashamedly good, that which God has called good. And we herald the fixed, unchanging gospel of Jesus Christ until God's plan for the nations is finished. So eat the foods that God created and do so with thanksgiving because Christ has paid for all of your sins and his righteousness is your righteousness. Hold marriage in high esteem because the God who instituted it is good and know that marriage is preaching a grander story than just your marriage. And that story is that believers share an unbreakable union with their good husband, eternal husband, that is Jesus Christ. We don't live, and we should never live as Christians, as if Christ's work is insufficient. Christ's work is sufficient. So we live our lives not of morbid legalistic fasting, but of worship celebration, celebration knowing that Christ alone is our sufficient, pro- sufficient prophet, priest, and king. Takeaways, there's only one way to be right with God that's through Christ. It's God alone, not man, that has the authority to bind the conscience of people. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time that, that we have in your word. And God, we ask that, Lord, you would allow us to see and to herald and to rest in the all-sufficient work of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Taking a break this week in our, uh, our series on the book of 1 Timothy. And um, this morning, what I want to do is speak to you about the state of the church. And Lord willing, um, the plan is for us to do something like this every new year. And, and sometimes we may specifically focus on our uh, particular local church, and uh, other times we may focus more broadly. And, and this morning, I want us to address the state uh, of the church capital C. And if, I, if we would have printed the bulletins this week instead of two weeks ago, I would have called this the state of the church in Babylon. Is, is. And so you can, you can pencil that in if you would like, the state of the church in Babylon. And, and I want us this morning truly to be encouraged about what the Lord is doing in the nations as, as he expands his church, no matter the opposition, right? We, we, we have a hard time, I think, seeing God's kingdom expansion. We, we have a really hard time seeing that light really does shine bright in darkness. We have trouble seeing the various ways, the various means that the Lord uses um, to promote the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, and, and the path may seem strange that, I, uh, that, that, that the text takes us down this morning, but 
uh, the aim, my prayer, is that we as Christians uh, would be encouraged about what the Lord is doing in His church. We here in the West, uh, I believe, have entered Babylon, and, and I've said this before, I think we've entered Babylon, and I think that we live in Babylon, and I think that most of us will perhaps die uh, in Babylon, if not all of us will die in Babylon, but I believe that the unrest that we see, the, the unrest that we're experiencing and the insanity in our society, it, 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 it's not a sign of the world spinning out of control, but it's rather God's providential hand, I believe, judging our nation and also his providential hand in the way that he's advancing his kingdom. And we're going to see God's judgment this morning, and we're going to see how he's moving forward this grand plan of redemption, even as he holds nations in derision. But I believe in Western society, we're here, sitting here this morning, perhaps at a, at a much larger scale, we're sitting under the judgment of God. And I think Romans 1 teaches us as much, starting with verse 21. I'm just going to read it. I think we'll have it up on the screen. Um, and then I'm going to jump into Psalm 2 here in a second. But Paul, writing to the Romans church, Roman church, he's speaking about the judgment of God. And you'll see in a moment how this is relevant uh, to what we're looking at in Psalm 2 and why we still should be encouraged, again, at the progression of God's kingdom and how we can even see God's judging of a nation as the means by which he advances his kingdom. But we see the judgment of God starting in verse 21 of Romans chapter 1. Paul says, For although they knew God, okay, and he's speaking about everybody because what can be known about God as plain through what we as Christians call general revelation, right? We can see all creation. We can see that there's a God that created it, and we stand, um, we stand without excuse based on how obvious it is that our God exists. But he says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, verse 22, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 25, because, and this is key, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who's blessed forever. Amen. Nothing, in my opinion, so succinctly captures what's going on in our society better than this short passage of Scripture right here. We have in our homes... In, in, in many churches and in our society and in our government, we've exchanged the truth about God for a lie for far too long. The, the calls of repentance have been ignored. God's law has been trampled and thus his gospel has been rejected. And if you've wondered what the judgment of God and the wrath of God looks like in this life, if you've ever wondered that, look to that Romans 1 phrase, God gave them up. God 
gave them up. God gave them up to what? Right? According to Romans 1, what they wanted. Right? God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Now, I said I wanted us to be encouraged this morning, right? And I, and I know that bringing this in kind of seems out of place in a sermon where I opened and said, hey, I want us to be encouraged and even optimistic about what God's doing. But flip over with me to Psalm chapter 2, because as things seem dark, right, as we enter and as we live in Babylon, God uses, and I mentioned this a moment ago, but God uses even his judgments over a nation to advance his cosmic redemptive plan for the world, right? God's gospel light shines bright, and it's going to continually move forward. And I want us to see that that's what the Lord is doing for his people, despite all the wickedness that we may see in society. And so God's kingdom is advancing in light of judgment, in light of what we're going to see is the nations raging. And so Psalm 2, I'm going to read it, okay? This is a a Psalm of David, he penned under the inspiration of the Spirit. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to look at four different things that we need to see from this psalm this morning. The Psalm 2 says this, says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And that word anointed there can be translated as Messiah, saying... Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Verse 10. Now therefore, and in light of all of that, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Verse 12. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for your word, God. We thank you once again that it's living and active, God. We thank you that Christ Jesus, as we'll see, is ultimately the fulfillment of this psalm, God, and that we, despite what we see going on in our lives and our circumstances, God, in the news and social media, Lord. Despite all of that stuff, Lord, we can rest certain that you're in control, providentially guiding this world, Lord, accomplishing your plan and your purpose, which is for your kingdom to come here as it is in heaven. And so help us to believe that. Give us the faith to believe that. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a a New King James Version translation, you would have noticed on this particular psalm that they gave it the title, The Messiah's Triumph 
and kingdom. And I like that title because I think it helps us with the interpretation a little bit. And I help, I think that it helps us to see the Messiah, which is Christ Jesus, right? He's the Messiah. I think it helps us to, to, to prepare ourselves to see that uh, he, um, he, he conquered and is conquering despite conflict, despite what we see all around us. And, and the official historical background of this psalm is, is in debate. And I thought about spending some time fleshing out the various interpretations of it, but I think that would cloud the primary thing that we need to see about this psalm. Right? We, we should see this psalm, perhaps clearer than any other psalm uh, in the Psalter, uh, as messianic. Right? And, and in other words, we should see Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of this particular psalm. And I can't help but to think that David, who, who penned these words, who sang this psalm, who prayed this song, but David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote these words to remind himself that nobody can overthrow God's government. Right? Nobody can overthrow God's government. The very prophecy about Jesus that we're so familiar with as Christians that we, we sing about and we read about and we watch movies about um, is, is uh, the, the passage in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, the prophecy that says that the government will rest on his shoulders, right? Will rest on the shoulders of Christ, that Christ is the one that props it up. And, and when the Scripture speaks of his kingdom, when the Scripture speaks of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the Scripture clearly says that his kingdom has no end. His, his kingdom has no end. There's no beginning to his kingdom. There's no end to his kingdom. There's nobody that can thwart the plans of kingdom advancement for King Jesus. And that's at the heart of this psalm. That's what's at the heart of this psalm. This psalm applies chiefly to Christ. And this psalm is perhaps the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. We see Luke apply this psalm to Jesus in Acts chapter 4, verse 25. We see Paul preach this passage of Scripture and apply it to Jesus in Acts 13, verse 33. We see the preacher to the Hebrews apply this passage to Christ in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, and then later in chapter 5, verse 5. We see John on the island of Patmos in Revelation use this psalm several times to apply it to Jesus. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, chapter 2, verse, verse 27, and chapter 12, verse 5. Augustine, St. Augustine, called Jesus the singer of the Psalms. And perhaps the clearest example that we have of Jesus being the singer of the Psalms is here in Psalm 2, chapter 2. So as we look at this passage this morning, I, I want us to see above its potential immediate contexts, and I want us to look to Christ, okay? I want us to look to Christ, who's the fulfillment of this psalm, who's the hope of the world, okay? And if you're taking notes, you can jot this down, and I'm going to kind of take this stanza by stanza, if you will. Well, the first thing that I want us to see is, is that we shouldn't be surprised that the nations rage, right? Don't be surprised that the nations rage, don't be surprised that the nations rage. The, the psalmist says, why do the nations, some, translation, uh, some translators translate the word nation to heathen, one who is not a Christian, one who, if you were to look up the Webster Dictionary, would say he's without religion, but specifically this would apply to Christianity. Why do the nations, why do the heathens rage and the peoples plot in vain? 
the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, again, Messiah, saying, let's burst their bonds of heart and cast away their cords from us. Those in rebellion to God, those in rebellion to his kingdom expansion and spreading, always do what we see here in this stanza. They always do what we see here. In these three verses, in this first stanza, we see rage, which could be translated as noisy assembly, if you've heard of us having any of those lately. And the word has behind it this idea of perpetual restlessness, a perpetual restlessness. And the word can also be translated as an act of dispensing afflictive judgments, dispensing afflictive judgments. We see the Lord do this righteously when he judges sinful, wicked, rebellious people and nations. We see the government, our government, do this righteously when they pass equitable, just sentences on those who've broken the law and when they uphold righteous law. But in this context, we have wicked nations a king full of kings and rulers, as our text says, dispensing wicked, afflictive judgments. Right? And, and, and we shouldn't be surprised by this. Right? If, if you've been paying attention at all to our neighbors in the north, you would know that right now afflictive judgments are being cast in Canada with the universal and enthusiastic passing of a bill called Bill C-4, which will carry a sentence of up to five years in jail for anyone who calls homosexuality and its companion sins to be repented of so that people may find freedom in Jesus Christ. And that begins here in the West, neighbors to the North, that begins on January the 8th. This is a modern-day example right, that we have of a raging nation. Right, think of the history of the world, or, or think about what our brothers and sisters in places like China, or more recently, and we've prayed for these brothers and sisters, our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, what, what they've been going through. Right, even think of where we are as a nation when our government, whether that be at a state level or at a federal level, overreaches and attempts to take jurisdictional, jurisdictional authority whether that be medical decisions, whether that be the right that we have to be able to gather as God's church, but takes that away from the jurisdiction of the home or takes away the, the ecclesiastical authority from God's people. This is bad. This is sinful. Right? And, and we see plotting in this verse. Just in these first three verses, we see, we see plotting, which means to coo or to growl or to mutter. It's a, an inarticulate sound. It means to speak in a hush undertone. It means to speak in the shadows. It has behind it conspiracy, a plan to do something that's unlawful. And by unlawful, I mean against God's law and against God's ordering of things. We see an organization in this psalm of antichrists called kings of the earth, called rulers who take counsel together. And and I say antichrists because they're working specifically against the Lord, right? Against the anointed is what we see in this passage. They are anti-Christ, 
anti-Christ. And the world is full of them. Right? And, and, and these antichrists, these kings of the earth, these rulers aim to eradicate the world of its creator. They aim to eradicate the world of its sustainer. They aim to eradicate the world from its savior, the Messiah. Again, if any psalm could be applied to Jesus, it's, it's certainly this psalm. But, but why all of this plotting against the Messiah? Why all of this plotting Because this is what antichrists do. This is what antichrists do. And behind flesh and blood, people that are, uh, that have animosity toward the things of God is the first antichrist, which is Satan, the serpent from the garden. We we shouldn't be surprised. They, They seek to steal the authority of God for themselves. They're glory robbers. They seek to sit on the throne that rightfully and eternally belongs to our triune God. They they do exactly what we see back in Romans 1 when I read it to you a moment ago. They seek to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And they seek to worship what is created. They seek to worship what's created because they want to be gods themselves. They want to be autonomous. They want all authority so that they can fulfill every sinful, lustful meditation in their hearts and force people to agree with the rightfulness of their lusts. That's exactly what verse 3 is getting at. These antichrists come together, if you look at verse 3, and they say together in unison, in secret, they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, let us free ourselves from accountability, right? Let us free ourselves from restrictions. Let us free ourselves really from the judgment of God. In other words, they come together and they agree that God's law is evil. God's law is oppressive. God's law is bigoted and they act in such a way as to do away with it, right? Let us free ourselves of it is the mantra here. It's their mantra because they have a backwards definition of freedom. They have a backwards definition of freedom. They define freedom as lacking self-control. They define freedom as lacking self-control. They define freedom as being led by lustful passions. Their freedom is selfish. Their freedom is self-centered. It makes a God of self. In fact, that's why they rage. That's why they rage. In in the New Testament, James tells us as much when he warns the church of being worldly. James chapter 4. Again, this is a warning. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? He's not addressing the fights or the quarrels. That's the external behavior. He's saying, what's behind it? Why are you raging, is what James is saying. And then he answers his own question. Is it not this, that your passions are are at war within you. Your passions are at war within you. Those seeking to do away with God's way and his laws, which, by the way, points us to Christ, who's beautiful and glorious and this good king who deals with us according to his good, perfect, unchanging character. Those, those who, who seek to do away with that prefer the tyranny of a morally bankrupt, selfish king that calls what is beautiful ugly and what's ugly beautiful. And in that type of kingdom, 
people are eternally harmed. And we should care as God's church about the eternal welfare of people. People in that kind of kingdom are subjected to ever-changing laws to accommodate the lusts of the day. What we're exchanging in reality when we get down to it is freedom for slavery. We're exchanging freedom for slavery. We're exchanging the joy and the peace and the pleasure of having our sins forgiven for ultimately the judgment and wrath of God because that's where this road ends, judgment and wrath. The kings that are trying to break the cords of accountability to escape God's judgment is evidence that they're under God's judgment. But in this government of wicked kings and rulers, if that's the the conditions in which we live in under wicked kings and rulers, the only sin is to say that there is sin, right? The only sin is to say that there's a creator that you'll give an account to. The, the only sin is to offer up an exclusive better king, one that jeopardizes their own power, their own authority, and to say that this good, better, exclusive king is the savior of his people and he wants to provide forgiveness and reconciliation. And that's the only sin. And in the government of wicked wicked rulers, that message is criminalized and there's no pardon for it. As we're surveying this morning the state of the church, again, and I would add in the midst of Babylon, don't be surprised by opposition. We see opposition right here in Psalm 2. You see lots of opposition and adversity as you become familiar with your own Bible. And don't be surprised that our our Western nation rages because ultimately we see that the rage is against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And and, and don't think that you can cram to be steadfast in the Lord the night before. Right? As we've entered Babylon, and truly, and I I, I say this and I wanted to preach on this this morning because of, of my love for you, but as we prepare as we enter in and as we prepare to live, and I think we should be preparing to live, we need to be ready to suffer for our faith in ways that we haven't experienced before. We don't need to invite suffering. We don't need to draw undue attention to ourselves. Suffering is not good. Suffering is evil. No one should welcome it. But we need to be preparing our souls we need to be preparing our souls because over the last 50 or 60 years, particularly again in Western society, being a Christian hasn't cost a whole lot. And I think we're entering into a time where we're going to understand a little bit more about what it means to pick up our cross and to follow Christ Jesus. And you can't cram for that the night before. Next. So don't be surprised at the nation's rage. Secondly, Face the nations with the mindfulness of God's power and presence. Okay, so we don't want to be surprised. And we want to be able to face the nations with the mindfulness of God's power and the mindfulness of God's presence. The next stanza, starting with verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Right? The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion my holy hill. Right? God sees all things. 
Let's never forget that. Right? God sees all things, and he's above all things, and he's sovereign over all things. Right? We can't even go to Sheol. We can't even go to the depths of the earth and escape the presence of God. And as Christians, that should be immensely comforting to us. That should be immensely comforting for us. There's never anywhere we can go where we're outside the hands of our good, capable, unchanging, loving, gracious, full of mercy, sovereign God. That is comforting. And the moment we forget that, we despair. Right? The moment we forget that, we become paralyzed by fear. And from this passage, right, from this stanza, does it seem to us that God is caught off guard? Is he caught off guard? Uh, is he concerned that those who rage and those who plot against him might succeed? Right? Can, can his throne be stolen from him? No. No. Right? God, what does he do in this passage? He laughs. God laughs. Right? But for those who set themselves against the Lord... It's a terrifying laugh. It's a threatening laugh. Right? It's not, it's not the type of laugh where we're elbowing someone at a funny joke. Right? Here are a few other places where we see the Lord laugh. In Psalm 37, you see David in the opening verses, the first four verses. He's encouraging. Uh, he, he's being encouraging here. He says, fret not, right? Worry not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you to the desires of your heart. And then drop down verses 12 and 13 in the same psalm. The wicked plots. There's one of the words from our psalm. Plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. What day is that? It's the day of judgment. It's the day of judgment. Or look at Psalm 59, verses 6 to 10. It each evening... They, okay, and, and speaking of they here, if you're familiar with the context, these are the fierce men of the nations. They come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are bellowing with their mouths with swords in their hips for who they think will hear us. That's what they say. Who's going to hear us? We'll do what we want, right? There's, there's not a mindfulness that you cannot escape God's omni, his presence. He's omnipresent. He's present everywhere, right? Verse 8. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. Is that word again from our psalm, derision? The psalmist says, O my strength, I'll watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. Right? Protection. Refuge is the way that our passage puts it. Verse 10, he says, My God in his steadfast love will meet me, and God will let me look and triumph over on my enemies. And then we see the judgment language of Proverbs chapter 1, verses 24 to 31. It says, Because I've called, this is the Lord speaking, because I've called and you refuse to listen, 
have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded because you've ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, right? There's this outright rejection of the Lord and his design for the world, okay? Verse 26, here's what will happen. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm, and your calamity comes like a whirlwind when distress and anguish come upon you. And then the judgment continues. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Right? The fear of the Lord was the way out. I would have none of my counsel, despised all of my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way. Right? Their consequence is, is the very thing that they sowed right? and have their fill of their own devices. Right? The, the laughter of the judge of the world comes with exactly that judgment. It comes with judgment, right? The nations rage as they blasphemously seek to overturn God's kingdom and his ordering of things. The nations rage as they reject Christ as the rightful king of kings and the lords of lords. The nations rage, yet God laughs, and he laughs as he rules. He laughs as he reigns, and he sits securely as the establisher of his own throne. And in his laughter, he holds them, our text says, in derision, which means in his judgment of them, he causes these enemies, these, these attempts at usurping his authority, he causes them to stammer. He causes them to stumble. And in their stammering, in their stumbling, in their fumbling over their own folly, he conquers over them. And the imagery we get in this stanza, if you're looking at it with me in Psalm 2, is that God does all of this without even moving. He's sitting down. He doesn't even stand up. He sits in the heavens, above all, seeing all, and he laughs in judgment. As I was studying this, I, I came across from these comments from Spurgeon and, and he credits them to an old Presbyterian pastor in the 1800s named William Plummer. But these comments help put into perspective, it put into perspective for me, this kind of fixed reality that God's plans and his purposes and his judgments for his world will in fact move the kingdom forward. The church will continue to expand. Spurgeon said this, it's easy for God to destroy his foes. Behold, Pharaoh, his wise men, his hosts, and his horses plunging and sinking like lead in the Red Sea. Here's the end of one of the greatest plots ever formed against God's chosen. Of 30 Roman emperors, governors of uh, provinces and others high in office who distinguished themselves by their zeal and bitterness in persecuting the early Christians... One became speedily deranged after some atrocious cruelty. One was slain by his own son. One became blind. The eyes of one started out of his head. One was drowned. One was strangled. One died in miserable captivity. One fell dead in a manner that will not bear recital. One died of a loathsome disease, so much so that several of his physicians were put to death because they couldn't abide the stench that filled his room. 
Two committed suicide. A third attempted it, but had to call for help to finish the work. Five were assassinated by their own people or servants. Five others died the most miserable and excruciating death, several of them having an untold complication of diseases, and eight were killed in battle or after being taken prisoners. Among these was Julian the Apostate. In the days of his prosperity, he said to have pointed his dagger to heaven, defying the Son of God, whom he commonly called the Galilean. But when he was wounded in battle, he saw that all was over with him, and he gathered up the clotted blood and threw it into the air, exclaiming, Thou hast conquered, O thou Galilean. I mention this to point us to the better road, right? I mention this to point us in this direction that is full of spiritual abundance, this direction of having our sins forgiven. How much better would it have worked out for these powerful people had they bowed a knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ? Right? This Lord Jesus Christ who in the New Testament we see that through his humiliation, his coming to earth, his life, his death, his descending into the grave, and then ultimately his bodily resurrection, ascending to the right hand of God, that it's said of him that he triumphed over those principalities He put those principalities to open shame by triumphing over them in his life, death, and resurrection. God's ways are better for us. They're better for us. It's the good way. It's the way to find rest for our souls that's full of green pasture and still waters with a good shepherd who doesn't change the rules. He doesn't change the game. You can take his word to the bank. That not only do we have the testimony of Scripture that the Lord doesn't clear the guilty, those who are outside of Christ Jesus, but we have historical evidence of God toppling rulers and nations that set themselves against God's people and that set themselves against the advancement of God's kingdom. God's church will continue to expand in Babylon. It will continue to expand in Babylon. God's church is unstoppable. It's unstoppable. So we should face a, the nation, the raging nations, whatever nation that they may be, that may be, with the mindfulness of God's power, with the mindfulness of his presence. And we should never forget that it's God who has established the permanent kingdom, that of Christ. In verse 6, God closes the stanza by saying, I have set my king. He says, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And we know that God's Zion God's holy hill is his church, his elect from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. He is their king, and he will see his church home. He will see his church home. Third, Christ possesses the world even as the nations rage. Christ possesses the world even as the nations rage. The next stanza here, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you're my son, Today I've begotten you. Ask of me, I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This this is the hope that we have as Christians. This is why we shouldn't fret. This is why we shouldn't despair. This is why we shouldn't be paralyzed by fear as God's church. And this is why we shouldn't be unpleasant or cruel or bitter toward those that oppose God and his kingdom. 
This is why we should further, in my opinion, dig our heels in to being optimistic as it relates to the advancement of God's church. We should be an optimistic people. God's church should be optimistic. The nation's raging is in no way an indication that Christ is not Lord. The nation's raging is in no way an indication that Christ is not king. We serve King Jesus. We preach a King Jesus gospel. We're not waiting for him to be king. We're not asking people to elect him as the president. Jesus is king. Jesus is the fulfillment of this very psalm. Jesus is established here as the king of Zion. And our Jesus who came and dwelt among us in the incarnation and took our sins upon himself, our Jesus who conquered death, who conquered hell, who conquered the grave, did not forget to ask the nations as his inheritance. He didn't forget to ask the Father for the ends of the earth as his possession. Christ did not forget to fulfill this psalm. How does that impact us? Do we live in light of that as his church? Christ himself said after his, resur- after his resurrection and before his ascension, he says that all authority, Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, the part of the Great Commission that I've told you we often forget, right? The very thing that fuels the Great Commission. Christ said, all authority has been given to me, right? In heaven, what's not seen, and on earth, what is seen, right? That means that there's not a place in the entire created order of things in which Jesus Christ does not have authority. He has all authority. He inherited the nations at his exaltation, right? his rising from the dead bodily and eternally and ascending to the right hand of the Father. And we see this section applied to Christ so clearly In the New Testament, this is a part of Psalm 2 that's quoted um, the most in in the New Testament as it relates to Christ. So so the nation's raging. When we flip on our TVs, I saw some stat by the the news, the, the people engaging with the news. I don't even know what I'm trying to say right now. But the people engaging with the news, it's down like 40% or something like that. And I thought, man... That's great. <laughs> like that, that's great. Maybe it's catching on, right, that, that, that this isn't healthy for us to be intaking all of this negativity and this chaos, right, and the fear-mongering that's going on. But despite all of that, despite everything that we see, despite everything that we're experiencing, the raging does no, in no way indicate that Christ does not possess the world. He's the possessor of it. He has authority over it. He's ruling and he's reigning and we can take comfort and we take hope in that. We don't have to fret. We can know that God's plan and purpose, people from every tribe and every tongue, every nation is being accomplished and that nothing can happen to us that doesn't pass through the hands of a sovereign, good, triune God. So Christ possesses the world even as the nations rage. And lastly, and this is a bit of the so what, preach Christ to all people. Preach Christ to all people. Last stanza. Now, therefore, this is the call. In light of all of this, kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Verse 12, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. And then here's the, 
It's the, the positive note here, the good note, the hope that's found in Christ alone. Blessed, some translations say happy, right, are all who take refuge in him. This is the practical application of this psalm. Right? In light of God's power, in light of God's presence, in light of Christ as king, repent of your sins and bow a knee to your king. Right? And, and we don't discriminate in who we preach that to. Right? The, the, the very rulers that are trying to topple God's government are the very ones that are called to repentance in this psalm here. Right? right? It should demonstrate to us that we don't hoard the gospel message. We're heralds of the gospel message, right? That, that should be our heart posture toward those who rage. That should be our heart posture toward godless government officials. This should be our heart posture toward all people. We should want them to know Christ. We ourselves were once those who raged against the Lord and have left to our own devices. We would still be raging against the Lord, but God in his goodness has taken us who were once his enemies. That's what we are by default. And he's made us his allies. We should want more allies. And the way that God's enemies are conquered isn't through weapons of war. The way God's enemies are conquered is through the Holy Spirit of God regenerating hearts based on the word of God going forth out of the mouth of God's people into all of his people, again, from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation, bow a knee to our Lord and our eternal King, Jesus Christ. Paul was a fierce persecutor of Christians and God struck him blind and saved him. God is expanding his kingdom. He's expanding his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Our, our call should be kiss the sun. Right? Affectionately embrace King Jesus. Our call should be to pay homage to the king of the world because that's the only blessed life. That's the only happy life. Right? Those who find refuge enter into this unchanging blessedness that's tethered, not something outside of God himself, but is, is us being able to possess God himself who is blessed. And God's doing this. Even as we enter into Babylon here in the West, God's doing this. So we as a church, we need to rest in the Lord We need to to preach to ourselves. We need to preach to our families. We need to preach to this world about the judgment of God, about the beauty of embracing Christ and the freedom in serving the Lord with the fear of God and abandoning the slavery of our own lust and our own passions. Matthew 28, the Great Commission, verse 18 through 20. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. This hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. Right? No matter what's going on in our society, this hasn't changed. Christ has all authority. And in fact, the friction that we see in our society exists because our world is on an inescapable collision course with the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And we're to be those heralds. We herald that in all nations, commit ourselves to making disciples in the authority of Christ. We baptize in the authority of the triune God. We teach disciples, no matter the opposition, that they're to remember that Christ is always with us. And and the job's not done yet. 
There there are nations left to reach. The, The church is still yet to be taught obedience to all that God has commanded. There's work to be done, and there's going to be work that continually needs to be done as we work for God's will to be accomplished here on earth as it is in heaven. So a few, a few takeaways for us this morning. And we'll email these to you because they're not in your bulletin. But Jesus reigns even as the nations rage, therefore don't be discouraged. Jesus reigns, reigns even as the nations rage, therefore don't be discouraged. Two, become a member of your local church. And that's an encouragement from the elders here to be identified with the people that you worship with. Um, And and so we're going to do membership renewals uh, that are going to be made available next week. But if you're not a member here and you're you're calling this place your home, I would encourage you to become a member here, to be identified with this group of people. Three, prepare yourself to suffer as a Christian. Prepare yourself to suffer. And and there's two two ways I want to encourage you to do that. Worship the Lord every Lord's Day with God's people. Gather to worship every Lord's Day with God's people. Secondly, worship with your family every day. Those are the two primary ways that the Lord can prepare you and flourish you spiritually and, and, uh, and, and renew your mind despite all things that are going on in our, our society. Worship the Lord every Lord's Day with God's people gathered. Secondly, worship the Lord with your family every single day. Read a passage of Scripture, pray together, sing together. That's what I'm encouraging you to do. Every day with your family, read the Word, pray together, sing together. Fourth, preach the King Jesus Gospels, gospel in your circles of influence. Preach the King Jesus Gospel in your circles of of influence. And five, get involved in praying for our missionaries. I would encourage you to do that. And, and the, the date for that, that I'm going to give you an overview and allow you to ask, have an opportunity to ask questions about our missionaries is going to be that same Sunday we're doing the stay in need. And so that afternoon um, at 4 p.m., we'll meet and we'll have an overview of the missionaries that we're supporting and partnering with. Uh, try to make some needs, prayer needs known to you that they have as we've been in communication with them. And then we're going to spend the rest of the time praying together for our missionaries. And, and, and my prayer is, is that continues in your home. So Jesus reigns even, even as the nations rage. Don't be discouraged. Become a member of your local church. Be identified with the people you worship with. Prepare yourself to suffer as a Christian. Do that by worshiping every Lord's Day and worshiping with your family every day. Preach the King Jesus gospel in your circles of influence and get involved in praying for our missionaries. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Psalm 2. We thank you for the comfort and hope that we have that you are in control of all things. God, help us to internalize that and help us to be motivated by that. And Lord, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. This is the.